What's up, nerds? Welcome back to the Applied Science Podcast with me, your host, Yogi Revan. This week, we are joined by Vitamin Dina, or just Dina. Um, she is a brilliant friend of mine. She has her PhD. Uh, she's my first guest so far who has a PhD. Um, hope to have some more of those in the future. We get into nutrition, food, being vegan. Um, I think it's good because Dina is vegan. She's hardcore. Uh, I'm not a vegan, but I do try and eat like one as much as possible. Probably could do a better job of that. Um, and Dina's really pragmatic and down to earth. So it's not a, a podcast of a bunch of holier-than-thou vegan stuff. Um, and no, do- no joke, she's mad smart. So it's not just the same old lines. It's some actual science about why being vegan is better for you and better for the earth. All right. Let's get some ads in here quick. Do you know somebody who recently had a baby or who has a kid and you want to get them a special gift they're going to be able to enjoy for a long time? Uh, get a, get them a, a customized baby blanket with special patterns and embroidery to say their baby's name or whatever. Um, you go to Two Bees Boutique. That's T W O B E E S Boutique. Uh, find them on the internet. Find them at Etsy. Find them on social media. And you can use the promo code Yogi Nerd, all one word, for ten percent off your first order. If you want some fresh vintage '90s gear, go to Deep Cover NY on the. Uh, on the internet.com or you can find them on socials at DeepCoverNY and uh, you can use the same promo code YogiNerd, all one word, for 10% off with them. If you're near Merrick, New York and you need somebody you trust to fix your car, go to Norbell. That's N-O-R-B-E-L right on Merrick Avenue in Merrick. They'll take good care of you, I promise. Um, If you want some awesome art, Check out SKDB underscore paints on Instagram. She's the one who did the painting, which is featured in this episode's artwork. Um, so that's it. Thanks to everyone who's been supporting. Check out the link tree and follow me someplace you don't follow me yet. I'm super pumped at how the sound on this episode came out. Dina knew what she was doing and I figured some new stuff out. So uh, I'm pleased with it and I think you will be too. So enjoy. Yeah. Then I was like, oh, but they're, if they're going to come out with some new cool thing. <laughs> yeah, my problem and with Alexis... IMAX, though, has always been, like, if there's something wrong with it and you have to bring it into the Apple store, they're so heavy because <laughs> the monitor is attached to it. Yeah, you literally have to bring this gigantic. So I'll just grab, like, three sentences of something random that we said in the past 21 minutes um, mm-hmm. as, right, like, we were in. just having some, having some banter. <laughs> yeah. And then all of a sudden it been, like... All right, so ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the show, Dina. How are you, Dina? Hey, Yogi. I'm pretty good this morning. Thank you for being here. Thank you for interviewing in in a morning. This is not (laughs) always my typical time frame, but this is definitely when my brain works best. Yeah, that's true for me also, and uh, I've been looking forward to it. Yeah, I, I was talking to my husband this week about doing this podcast, and I was saying, yeah, it's going to be a pretty... I think just meandering, unstructured discussion about all things science. I don't really need to do a lot of prep. To which he said, yes, but you will anyway. And I did. <laughs> He's right. And and I, I love it. So I like to give my guests homework ahead of time. Usually give yes. them maybe two or three links on one story so they can go see something, maybe see it from a 
a general uh, media standpoint, like if a CNN yeah. article exists, uh, also something that's a little bit, you know, denser, like a Scientific American, and maybe something else that's like uh, more complicated. And so this week, on the flip side, you've done a great job of giving me, I don't know, no less than like 20 or 30 links <laughs> to various topics. So you, you've given me the homework, and I genuinely uh, thank you for that. It, it's, it's cool. I really appreciate it. Oh, cool. I'm glad. Yeah, we have a lot of different topics we can, we can get into. Yeah, and if we can't fit it in, we can always come back to it in the future. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, this could be like four podcasts. <laughs> what's in there before we jump into any of uh these topics specifically mostly focusing around nutrition but getting into various adjacent topics why don't you tell us a little bit about who you are and where you've come from and how you got to where you are today sure i never really decided what i wanted to do as a career like i started out as a biomedical engineering major and then I got a PhD in biomedical science, and I was really, really into the heart and the cardiovascular system, always. Uh, when I was in engineering, I wanted to, like, build an artificial heart. And then, um, yeah, then I just got more into the science end than the engineering end. And then during grad school, um, like, I was, always, I was always overweight, and I gained a lot of weight in college and grad school. And then I went through this whole thing where... Like I changed my diet and got a lot healthier. And then I started like reading all the nutrition literature. And so then I wanted to work in nutrition. Um, so that's, and that is what I have done since I finished my PhD. I've worked in nutrition for like 11 years. Um, and I also do a little bit of other science writing. And then I decided that I really missed like math and data. <laughs> so now I'm also in the midst of a master's program in data science, which I will be done with in a little over a year. It's been, that's been a very long haul. It's been like four years already. <laughs> okay. I'd like to ask you some questions about how you went through those various steps in sure. your initial, um, let's say, academic foray. Mm -hmm. So you went to undergraduate for biomedical engineering. Yes. What, what brought you there? How did you, or did you, did you know you were going to go into science? for a long time or was uh, yeah. that kind of like an 11th grade 12th grade kind of decision no it was always it was always like loved science and math and english and history well not so much history but english always seemed like a waste of time it was very frustrating because it's like so subjective like writing essays and stuff and having the teacher grade it um so i always knew it was going to be math and science and i was sort of interested i was very interested in biology and physiology and and all the, you know, the guidance counselors in my family were all telling me, well, you're so good at math. You're so good at math. You need to be an engineering major. <laughs> so that was really how I ended up in engineering. And so I chose biomedical engineering because what I was really interested in was biology and math. Okay. That's, that's great for you and I can relate. Um, but it's also a little bit sad because like people are yes. just like, you're good at math. You yes. should be an engineer because we don't have a whole lot of people around here who are that good at math, but you are, so you should go do that. <laughs> exactly. And yeah, I have sort of mixed feelings about that now, whereas I think it was good advice because I was also thinking about things like physical therapy, which I think I would not have liked. I, I was thinking about that because I was really interested in biology and sadly, 
I did not think I was, you know, quote, smart enough to go to medical school, which in hindsight, you know, is kind of sad to me. And so I always just like shut that out as a possibility. So I was looking mm. for something in like the medical field, but that was not being a physician. Yeah, so I think biomedical engineering was actually like a really good, a really good choice. Yeah, although today there's, um, there's a whole bunch of majors that didn't exist back then. There's like computational biology, um, which also would have been really interesting and cool. Right, and that's funny that on, on the high school level, you don't think about biology being math-oriented pretty much at all. It's more vocabulary words and learning about relationships between different systems. But you, at least in my biology experience, I don't know what AP bio would have been like, but mm -hmm. there was it was pretty much absent math. Yeah, I think it was then, and as I got into college, um, college level when you get to like physiology there's a lot of like um, electrical conduction there's a lot of especially um, when you get like in you know nervous system and cardiovascular system there's a lot of like electrical conduction so like that's a little more math oriented but especially with the heart there's um, the heart is a pump right so it's like pressures and volumes and like resistance and like there's a lot of math in in the physiology of the heart and like that's oh, how cool. That's what I. That's what really made me fall in love with like the heart and vascular system. That's really cool, and like concentration <laughs> gradients, I guess, start oh, to sure. be interesting things. Yeah. Um, like between like intracellular stuff. Right, your intracellular ions, extracellular ions, like all that. that's really relevant to like um, like uh, nerve tra nervous transmission, like nerve signal transmission and also like, um, muscle contraction, you know, the heart beating, all that, okay. like that's all, um, you know, sodium or potassium or calcium or whatever, like crossing, crossing cool. membrane. I like this stuff. Um, and then did you roll straight into grad school from undergraduate? I did. I actually, when I was in, uh, undergrad, we we took we took a little like bus trip in this one class in this in our like advanced physiology class um every week to the medical school nearby where they taught us cardiovascular physiology renal and respiratory physiology and like we had labs and the department there that taught all these classes was uh, a department focused on cardiovascular sciences. So like all research about the heart and the vascular system. And a bunch of people who had done the BME program where I where I was had gone on to then go for a PhD in this Center for Cardiovascular Sciences. And so I got really excited about doing that because mm. the because that the physiology stuff was so interesting to me, especially the heart stuff. So did you know from day one of grad school that you were pursuing a PhD or was it like, I might pull the trigger on a master's or I might go all the way or what? It was exactly that. I originally enrolled as a master's student because I didn't, because PhD is, I mean, that's a big commitment. It's like, you know, on average six years, at least it was then. And so I started out as a master's student for the first year and then decided to step up to the, the PhD, hmm. which like as a side note, 
another thing that I think is a problem is like when I was interviewing, um, all the professors were telling me, well, you can't do anything with a master's. You have to get a PhD. Like a master's is not going to help you get a job. And I don't really think that's true. I think that was just like academia is very like academia centered. Plenty of pharma companies and whatever, like need people to work in labs who have like a bachelor's or master's in like biology and know how to work in a lab. And like, you know, those jobs do exist. And, you know, maybe you have more varied options with a PhD, but it's not like you can do nothing with a master's, but I'm still glad. I mean, I'm glad I got the PhD. Yeah. I'm jealous. Um, I remember towards the end of undergrad, me thinking like, I really like it here. I really like being in this <laughs> physics department. I really like just like the vibe um, I had done a couple of internships by that point in time, and I also liked having money. So mm -hmm. <laughs> I was yeah. kind of terrified of, like, staying in academia and not having money. So I was like, I'll come back. To, I'll, I'll, go, I'll go make some money as an engineer, and then I'll come back to school. Yeah. And I did, but definitely not for the degrees that I thought I would have at that point in time. Yeah, I'm really glad I did it right after undergrad because I think the idea of starting it, like, later would have been, like, too intimidating. But at least like the great thing about a PhD in, especially in, in science is that you are, you are actually working as like a research assistant. Mm -hmm. So you do get paid, you don't get paid very much, but it's not like, like your tuition is paid for and you get like a cost of living stipend. It's not like you're going to medical school and you're just like, just like hemorrhaging money to like get this degree that you're gonna have to pay off for the rest of your life. So like, that's a really nice thing about the PhD yeah. like model. You kind of earn it as you go. Yeah. More than more than the just give me loans and I'll <laughs> right. be indebted to you. Yeah, that's the model I followed. It's got its ups and downs. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so then you earn your PhD in cardiovascular science. I mean, it's it's biomedical science, but like specifically, yeah, okay. my research was on endothelial cells which are the inside lining of your blood vessels. Um, and they're very interesting, very important cells. Hmm. Okay. And then where do you go from there? And I sort of like, I sort of burned out on science. Like a bunch of things happened. It's like maybe three or four years into my PhD, I learned that, oh, actually, only about 15% of people with PhDs in the life sciences ever get a tenure track position. So that means 85% of us have to like figure out something else. You know, 15% of us actually get the job that we're trained to do. Yep. <laughs> so um, that was really intimidating. I just didn't think that like I was gonna be able to compete to be one of these 15% to get the tenure track position. Like, so there was that. And also I really enjoyed um, as much as, like, I did enjoy doing lab work, but there's so much, like, um, there's so much frustration and so, like, so many experiments that don't, when I say don't work, it's not like you get the, res you get results that, like, weren't what you thought. It's like, no, the, the experiment doesn't work. Like, the positive control is not coming out positive and the negative control is not, and, like, you spend weeks or months troubleshooting. And when you're in this situation where you're going, when I'm like out on my own doing this, 
I'm going to have to keep applying for more funding. And if all these months go by and I'm troubleshooting this experiment and I'm not getting any data and I'm not publishing any papers, you know, it was just like, it was such a stressful, it was, it felt like such a stressful job that I was never going to feel like I had any job security. And I, so I was worried about that. Um, and I, but I did look for, I was looking for postdoctoral fellowships in nutrition, um, but I was open to other things. And the first job that I actually was offered was a writing position about, you know, nutrition science. Um, so that's what I, that's the job I took. And then I stayed there and I'm still there. So now I'm a science writer. <laughs> okay. That's awesome. That's, I guess where I would categorize myself, well, not as a science writer, but as in science communication. Mm -hmm. um, and that seems to be this emerging market um, that we need people to do science. And we also need to be, you know, people obviously need to teach it, but then there need to be science communicators. And I think that that's this cool, broad um, umbrella term right now that we see a lot of people, you know, really blazing their own trail. I um, like that term. Because another thing in my head was I thought maybe I could become a science journalist, but I'm not a journalist. I am, I am more of a technical writer. I'm not writing things that are entertaining, but I'm writing things that like, if you are interested in the subject, you will learn something and like, it'll mm. stick with you. Like that's sort of what I'm doing. So yeah, I do. I also sort of think of myself as a science communicator. And I think it's like this super important thing that we need because there is such a huge gap between the science that is out there, like, you know, published, and what the public actually knows and understands about science. And, uh, yeah, like, that was one of the things that frustrated me. Like, if, you know, we get into, like, the nutrition literature, so much of what you see in newspapers, online, whatever, about nutrition is it seems fickle. It seems like it doesn't make any sense. You read something one week that says, you know, how great blueberries are for your brain. And then the next week it's like, yeah, maybe not. Maybe, maybe fruits and vegetables don't really do anything. Maybe, you know, it's like, it seems like it doesn't make any sense, but that's partly because a lot of stuff is written. It's about like a single study and it never puts it into context with the whole of the literature. It never like, which like it takes a ton of work to actually like write in that style and you can't do that for something that's like a daily newspaper. Yeah. I mean, for a daily newspaper, they want people to click on an article. They that's want the other problem. to write a headline <laughs> that's um uh, seductive enough that somebody's going to be like, "I need to read about this." Exactly. Yeah, you have this is sort of sensational Is wine good? Is wine bad? Yes. You have this sort of sensationalistic thing. And you have a lot of, like, people want to read good news about their bad habits. So the stuff that gets more press is like, you know, it's like, ooh, meat might be good for you. Let's click on this. It's like that's that's really um, – or, like, being slightly overweight is better than being not overweight for, you know, like those, those sort of headlines. Like, those are really going to get the clicks. So, like, no wonder people are confused and frustrated. <laughs> Right. And I think those two examples that you just named, too, aside from the fact that they're somewhat speculative and they're really just trying to, like, sell some ad space, mm -hmm. those are f 
those really anchoring themselves in the fact that people are going to click because of confirmation bias. Mm. Yes. People are going to be like, if that is true, then I'm doing the right thing. So <laughs> exactly. I'm going to go read that article so I can tell everybody who tells me I'm doing the wrong thing to shut up. Yes. Yeah. And then in addition to that, if you see an article, if you see a headline that says the opposite, you probably won't read it. So it's not as salient. Like it's not as top, like top of mind. And so like it doesn't seem as important. Like if you keep reading the ones that say the things you like, you're not really getting like a balanced view, even if you're yeah. seeing the headlines. I Like there's a name, I think it's saliency bias. Or like when... Okay. Um, because you pay attention, it's, it's the things you pay more attention to. Okay. I have, I, this is an example of saliency bias. I've, th I've thought about this. Like, I, okay, this is an X-Files thing. I've Great. heard people say like so many times I look at the clock and it's 1013. 1013 is like a big number in the X-Files world. And it's like, you know, it must, you know, it must have like. It must be some some mystical thing. So it's like, no, it's like when you look at the clock and you see 1013, you remember it. When you look at the clock and you see 1016, you don't. So it seems like you're a lot more often looking at the clock and seeing 1013 than seeing 1016, 1014, 1012. It's just that like you, t you make a note of it when you see 1013. That's like, I think that's saliency bias. I'm not totally sure that's the name of it. I should look it up. No, and, I'm, <laughs> and then that ties back to really just the state of... Um, oh, just salience bias. Okay. Salience. <laughs> Got it. I'm going to read more about that one. And, but that's really the issue in America or even the world today, whether we're talking about politics, whether we're talking about science, whether we're talking about whatever, that um, the internet was going to do all of these wonderful things for us, mm -hmm. and it has, yeah. but it's come, at a, it's come at certain costs. Yes. Um, and so people who think, well, I'm not going to go get a degree. I can just watch videos on YouTube that'll mm -hmm. make me just as smart. That'll teach me the same things. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, it's really difficult because you have a lot of people on the internet with very good intentions who talk about things that, like, either it's their own confirmation bias affecting them or just, like, sort of lack of understanding of of some of the science and whatever. And so they're putting out information that's like not really that great. And then, you know, other people listen to it. And um, yeah, there's a whole bunch of like vegan documentaries. That I just like, I don't watch them. I'm vegan, by the way. <laughs> yeah, we didn't touch um, on that yet. We didn't, yeah, we didn't touch on that. But I, I can't, because a lot of vegan websites and vegan documentaries will sort of oversell veganism, like, uh, health-wise and I like to sort of separate it is like I'm vegan as like a, a code of ethics but like I eat vegetables for my health <laughs> a lot of times on like vegan sites you have a whole lot more emphasis on the dangers of animal products and like less emphasis on the dangers of like refined carbohydrates sugars whatever the the bad things that are actually also vegan hmm. so like I mean, my, the way I would say it is like, well, being vegan is not really like enough. Like you also have to like be eating vegetables and nuts and beans and all these like, and berries and all this good stuff and be like avoiding the bad stuff as much as possible. So you said earlier that you made adjustments um, that like sort of overlapping in your studies, you made adjustments to your own diet out of concern for your own health. 
Um, is that yeah. where you went? Did you do it in steps? Did you become vegan overnight? It was, the, How did there that were go? steps. It was steps over many years. Um, and it was always a combination between like the health thing and the concern for animals. Like by the time I was 12 years old, I had a really hard time eating meat because of my understanding of what it is. And, you know, I would just like, I would like, you know, like sort of like pull apart the little pieces of chicken because any little like streak of fat or little like weird, like crunchy thing, like just grossed me out so much. And always disliked the taste of red meat. And so once I, so like around the time I was 12, once I like sort of heard that like maybe red meat was not that good for you, I pretty much told my parents, well, I'm not eating it anymore because I don't like it. And if it's not good for me, what is the point of eating it? <laughs> so it started with that. Um, and after that, I got a lot more, I got a lot more interested in the, um, in just like the animal side of it. Like I just felt, I felt a lot of empathy for animals and it really felt, it felt wrong to me to be, you know, killing them and eating them. And that bounced around in my head a lot. And when I was 17, I woke up out of this dream, uh, a, a dream that I had like a baby chick as a pet. <laughs> okay. And you know, the chick grew up and about, I don't know, my parents or somebody telling me, well, like it's an adult, it's an adult chicken now. You can't keep it. You know, it has to be, it has to go to a farm and become like chicken that you eat. It hasn't like, and I woke up out of that dream and never ate meat again, ever. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm a little envious of just people who have experiences like that. Mm -hmm. um, for whatever reason, I just, I never had the, um, what's his name? Constantine. Mm -hmm. He has, Constantine uh, like really started the crusades and he had this dream where he saw uh, a sword with a cross like laid over it and it said in this sign conquer and he mm -hmm. woke up and he was just like there you go that that's that's how i'm going to rule my empire um and so i, I just that, that that's cool i dig that and i respect yeah. that because there's a certain amount of willpower that i think comes along with that um yeah yeah or maybe, I, I wanna... or maybe that's not as hard for you that, that that's right i want to add that like there is no willpower for me, the idea of eating meat is just repulsive to me. So I, I understand, but I, un, I understand that giving things up that you enjoy, giving it food up that you enjoy is really, really hard because I had a completely different experience giving up dairy. Giving up dairy was a lot harder because I liked it so much. And it didn't have the same gross out factor because it wasn't actual animal flesh, even though it came from an animal. Um, right now because i haven't eaten it in over 15 years like it, it is sort of yeah but um but i really understand and respect anyone who's trying to reduce meat consumption anybody who's doing meatless monday who's doing vegan before six who's just like taking a couple days off from eating meat a week like i respect all of those things because i understand that it's really difficult and it is the default that you grew up with yeah and it just, it becomes part of your, it's sad, but personality. Um, it becomes part of your, yourself. Um, oh, yeah. I'm not vegan or vegetarian, but I do agree with the ideals. I do agree with the principles. Um, my wife and I are 
vegan leaning, vegetarian leaning. She's definitely way better at it than I am. Um, and as a result, we've raised two children who are, and I say this with all the love in the world, militant vegans. Um, <laughs> like they, are, and, yeah. and I'm so proud of them, even if it makes my life a little bit more difficult. But in the house, we're vegetarian. We don't eat meat in the house. Yeah. So, th- so there's yeah, that's that. a great way to do it. Um, <laughs> I think the psychology of that is really interesting of your kids, because they they're yeah. growing up with the default is vegetarian. So. They never had to, like you or I, make a choice, like to take this thing that was always around, that we always ate, that everybody else is telling you is okay and fine and perfectly, you know, ethical, and to like stand yep. up and say, no, I'm not taking part in this. They just like from the beginning said, well, these are animals, we don't eat them. And so, yeah, it, 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 it is very interesting. And I, I will also just throw in that I remember when um especially your wife when she stopped eating meat my grandmother uh, i think got a little angry with me because she assumed that it was my influence <laughs> you did this <laughs> because you know she came over and like you know wouldn't eat my grandmother's chicken <laughs> that she made that's fun that's burned into my brain it was a really funny moment <laughs> And it's strange because in a sense, I don't know if I'm using this word correctly, but we kind of live in a food desert. Um, But the world on the whole is changing. Ten years ago, I don't – ten years ago, I don't think we would have been able to be vegetarian living where we're living. Now things like meat alternatives appear in stores. Um, Non-dairy milk is really popular in Puerto Rico. Um, and some of that is actually religiously influenced. Um, I meet lots of people who say that they have an aunt or they have a cousin, they have a grandmother who is vegetarian Mm because they meet me and we have some conversations. I'm like, well, not really vegetarian, but I try to eat, you know, significantly less meat. And, um, I think it's seventh day Adventist. Oh yes. Um, and they have a lot of really interesting rules about what you can eat, what you can't eat. There's something about fish having scales or not having scales. Oh, really? Um, but a lot of them are the reasons why almond milk is readily available in every single supermarket. Oh, that's I've read a lot of – there's a lot of really interesting research on Seventh-day Adventists um, for that reason. Because within the Seventh-day Adventist, you have some who sort of don't really adhere to those rules down to like they're 100% vegan. Yep. And um yeah. And you have and, some who, you have some who obey the rules of like kosher, like Jewish people. Mm-hmm. Um like they wouldn't eat pork or they wouldn't mix milk uh, meat with milk. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the uh the Seventh-day Adventist community in California is like basically they have a greater life expectancy than like anywhere else in the country. Is sort of what it boils down to. I think they also mm. don't drink alcohol. I'm not 100% sure on that, but I, I think that I would they believe don't. that. I think it or, makes sense. Or, or at least they steer pretty clear of it. And it's a shame because most of the people who I've met, who we've had this conversation with, is at work. So we start having a conversation about their religion. And I'm like, no, I'm genuinely influenced about, interested in this. And then there's this sort of line where, like, okay, this is kind of like getting a little weird to be doing at work. And at so work, we both yeah. draw the line. And it's yeah. just like, oh, but I have so many more questions. <laughs> 
There's this really weird, there's like vegetarian sausage and other imitation meat products that come in a can that are really common here. Oh, like is that the Loma, wa- Loma Linda? Water. Maybe. Because that is, Loma Linda is is where the Seventh-day Adventist community is in California. And I know they have like their own brand of foods and they have like some canned stuff like that. That might that be stuff's it. almost always available, but like the Morningstar Farms, mm-hmm. it comes and goes. Yeah. Um, they, they they don't keep it well stocked. Um, so when we see it, sometimes we buy so much that we're just like, we need another freezer. Um, <laughs> um, that kind of touches on one of the links that uh, is in our list, which has to do with like the history of um, fake quote meat or alternative meats or um, imitation meats which is that it actually goes back to, like, medieval China. Yeah, I like that This is this really cool article. article. If anybody's listening, look it up. It's on Vice. I always found it a little strange, like, when it was things like the Impossible Burger and the Beyond Burger and all this sort of, like, new, like, sort of tech, you know, venture capital, like, all this, like, these big, um, uh, like, make the meat, make make the plant meat taste like real meat sort of thing. And I'm like, well, this is not new. I, well, the first, the thing I always thought was like, Maywa has been doing this since the 70s. So anyone who's not familiar with Maywa, um, this is a, a little company in New York. I think they're called something else now. And they used to supply all of the the like imitation meat to a lot of um, there's a lot of vegan pan Asian sort of restaurant like Asian fusion sort of restaurants all over, and. They have all the stuff on the menu that's like, you know, they've got, there's like vegan shrimp, there's vegan chicken, there's vegan pepper steak. There's like every possible, there's like vegan drumsticks, like everything you can imagine. And this stuff always tasted so real to me that I could not eat it. Like it would gross me out. We used to go to a restaurant in North Jersey um, that was called, it's called Veggie Heaven. If it's still there, go there. And they had all of this stuff. And I used to always order something with tofu because the fake meat freaked me out so much because it was so real. So I always thought, like, huh. when I saw the Impossible Burger and Beyond Burger being developed, I was like, I don't know. It's like, we already have this. Um, but actually, so what I learned from reading this article is that it's not just Meiwa. Like, it goes back, way back to medieval China, where it was either Buddhist monks who were vegetarian and wanted to sort of make the traditional dishes... Maybe they were having guests who were not monks and wanted to make like traditional dishes or people who just couldn't afford meat because it was expensive and they figured out how to like mix up these ingredients and make stuff that tasted pretty similar. That's cool. I like it. My first experience with like vegetarian food, um, you know, as a, I'll put that in strange air quotes, um, was it was rare on Long Island, but in hard, at hardcore shows in the 90s, sometimes you would get some people who were pretty hardcore vegetarians who would bring a small amount of food and then like sell it. So you can go get like a, a, a vegetarian dinner in like a little disposable bowl with a plastic fork for like three mm-hmm. bucks. And it was like, you know, people who, high school kids who were like really leaning into, um, pita and you know Mm -hmm. just being like we need to expose people to this and um i think i ate it once um Mm -hmm. 
and it was just out of you know curiosity and it didn't really str- I, I regret that it didn't have a deeper impact on me um, mm. a friend of mine in New Jersey his experience he's also a little bit older um, I think he was at a lot more shows back then that did that kind of thing um, so I always I always wonder and then years later I got into a band called Shelter um, who definitely is uh, Buddhist influenced Hindu influenced um, I think they were Krishna um, and cool. they definitely you know they have they have songs about being vegan and stuff um, uh-huh. so of all of the different and so there's so many different kinds of veggie burgers um, yeah. you know out on the market um, I think black bean has been around in, in terms of like the modern veggie burgers like not just the um, I worked a, a job that had me touring um, so I was living in a bus in 2005 and I started eating Morningstar Farm chick patties um, back then just because it was to keep it somewhat G-rated just like easier on the digestive system mm. and you're going to be living on you're going to be living on a bus you want a pretty predictable regularity oh, yeah. um about yourself so it was just like well i could eat what i want to eat but i have these morning star farm chick patties and it that was my first exposure to eating something vegetarian regularly and they were okay there was nothing wrong with them and there was veggie burgers that were kind of um bland around mm-hmm. that time and i guess that's like the initial um the boca burgers the initial the Bo- boca burgers yeah i think it was garden burger and boca burger were like the first ones that were available in supermarkets uh-huh and then in 2004 um that same job brought me to australia in australia burger king doesn't exist in oh. australia burger king is called hungry jacks because there's a single restaurant called burger king who used oh, the name like, first in Australia. Okay. It's like a trademark or copyright thing. Yeah, so so it so it's the same logo as Burger King, but it says Hungry Jacks. They had a veggie burger which blew my mind because it had corn in it and I was able to oh, identify yeah. like this is a piece of corn. This is a pea and this That's is That's the awesome. kind of veggie burger I like. <laughs> and so that was 2004 mm-hmm. and I was like this is amazing. Why don't uh why doesn't Burger King in the states have this? And it would be years before they did, and then eventually it would be this impossible Whopper, which is now available. Yeah, it's sort of interesting how you have you have sort of two, um, two different categories of vegan meats. You have the ones that are like more for vegans. We're like we don't really care if it tastes like meat or not. We just like we need something to put between to put in a bun and put ketchup on, you know? Yep. And then there's the ones that are like really trying to make it like as close as possible to what a beef burger would would taste like and i mean i'm sure some vegans are some vegans who really enjoy the taste of meat and just gave it up would like really love that but like i just don't care about it yeah that's that's good and so the like one i want other pe- that- i want other people to eat it <laughs> The one couple that has been bubbling with mm-hmm. us, um, if I get Beyond Burgers, mm-hmm. the 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 woman will. So this is Sarah from last episode. She'll love a Beyond Burger, but John will have one of the Morningstar Farm black bean burgers. Um, 
Yeah. But those are a little spicy, so the kids don't really they, yeah, like those, those spicy. so much. I, I actually don't love those because they're actually a little too spicy for me. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I would go more toward like a garden burger or a, like Dr. Prager California burger or something like that. Like I like to see the vegetables in it. Um, okay. Beyond Burger, like I'll eat it if it's like the only thing on the menu. But to me, it just tastes like a Boca burger. Like... It, it, it doesn't seem that different to me from the Boca Burger, and that's been around for 30 years. Yeah. But there's, um, wait, wait, I had something. Oh, yeah. <laughs> what It was an interesting thing that happened with uh, Beyond and Impossible, where all of a sudden there was this backlash. It was like, like, well, wait, are these things even healthy? And it's like, well, that's not the point. <laughs> the point was to, to like, give people who are worried about the environmental consequences of factory farming, the, you know, the air pollution, the water pollution, the, the animal welfare to give them an option that like tastes sort of similar because it's hard to give up foods that, that we really enjoy. And it's like, and it was sort of interesting because you started seeing these comparisons like, well, these, these are like ultra processed foods. They're not healthy. And I'm like, okay, so you're comparing this to what, like some broccoli, a black bean burger. If you want healthy, eat a black bean burger. Those have been around forever. That's not the point of these. It's, it's a pile yeah. of pea protein and coconut oil. Of course it is not like going, it, it's not like great for you. Yeah. And sometimes there's like a, like you can go to like a, a nice vegetarian restaurant that'll have like a black bean burger and it's really folly a party, mm -hmm. but delicious. Yeah. So it's kind of like this trade off. It's like, well, they didn't focus so much on the function of it being like a burger. They focused on it being delicious. Yeah. They weren't like, well, what kind of binding agents should we use in order to make something that's still going to maintain its burgerness? Yeah, I love it when a restaurant has like a homemade veggie burger that is vegan. A lot of times they end up using eggs as a binder. But like uh. I've had, I don't remember the name of this restaurant. And I think it was in Tucson. And they had this like beet and mushroom burger. And it was amazing. <laughs> so I like, I love, that's like sort of like a tourist thing that I do. If there's a place with a homemade veggie burger, I really want to try it. That's cool. And it's interesting, like, so with these various fake meats, I think that each one has its own, um, each one requires its own mastery to cooking. Because um, some you should, like, the, the Morningstar Farms Black Bean Burger, cook that on, even if you defrost it a little bit first, cook it on a low temperature for a long time, and then hit it with a high temperature on both sides really quick. Um, that's how I've, quote unquote, mastered it. Um, and, you know trying to keep my wife happy and, and, and always asking for her feedback. Like, how was it today compared to the last time? And sometimes she has an answer and sometimes she doesn't. Yeah. Um, with fake bacon, I mm -hmm. think I've gotten a really good pattern down with some uh, olive oil mm -hmm. um, so that it ends up being, you know, pretty nice. Um, you sent me an article. It's a, it's a new company out of Slovenia. Um, for those who are wondering, Slovenia is just north of Italy, um, and it borders Croatia as well, um, called Juicy Marbles, which is oh, trying yeah. to make a, apparently they're making, they're making a steak and they're using sunflower oil to make some marbling in it, yeah, both for so the cool. flavor, the flavor and the function of it being like a steak. And at the moment it's like $150 for is a it? steak. <laughs> yeah. Well, I get, um, 
because I work for like a company that makes foods and supplements, I have signed up for all these like trade journal newsletters. So I think that's what I sent you. I get all this stuff from um, uh, Food Navigator. And so I get all this cool news about like brand new food tech things. And this is one that I thought like, wow, that is really cool. I wonder, I wonder what people will think of it. And was that, I'm trying to remember, was that like a cell cultured meat with sunflower oil marbling or was it a plant-based meat? I'm forgetting Wait, exactly on. what the what what the what the bulk of I'm it was. Sure oh, plant based. It's a plant based. So wow, it's still it's one hundred and fifty dollars. I guess it. Um, I mean, I guess there was a lot of uh, development that went into it, but yeah, I mean, it looks sort of like a steak. Yeah, it looks like a steak, and they say it cooks like a steak, uh, and they say that their target is in three years to have it cheaper than the real thing. Yeah, I think like that's a really uh, an interesting thing on the technology side, like the science side of the cell cultured meat companies is a lot of them, I think, are at first working on like sort of minced chicken or like ground beef. But like to actually make something that is a steak, like a steak is like a hunk of the animal. It is bone and muscle and connective tissue. It's like it's yeah. not just it's not just muscle cells, it's like all this other stuff too. So you get into all of this interesting science about like three-dimensional tissue culture and um, and just how to do it without using more animal products. Like one of the biggest challenges initially with the, the cell cultured meats was figuring out how to grow these cells without serum. So like in normal cell culture, because I remember this from working in a lab, um, serum is sort of like, um, serum is like when you let blood, I'm making sure I'm saying this correctly, when you let blood clot and then you take the liquid off the top. Yeah, like you, you centrifuge, you centrifuge blood it's a little more complicated than that, but um, it contains a lot of like growth factors and, okay. and and that sort of thing. So that helps the cells grow. It gives them like nourishment. It gives them the signals that tell them to grow, like that sort of thing. So just figuring out how to grow cells without that was like a huge challenge. And I think a couple of companies have figured something out. I'm not really sure what. And um, so then, yeah, the, an, another big challenge is like doing it in this three-dimensional way where you where you actually make it sort of like you have sort of connective tissue and whatever to make it more like a steak or a chicken breast or whatever rather than just like ground beef or ground chicken and at the end of the day where do you feel how do you feel about all this like so i don't think that you're gonna run out and buy this steak you're gonna i don't think you're gonna no <laughs> no not your thing no i mean yeah to me it's so yeah, I wouldn't say, I'm not gonna go out and make like, you know, like a black and white statement, like these things are not vegan. They're like a serious gray area, <laughs> you know? And I would like, okay. some, I think some vegans might choose to eat it and I think that's totally cool. But like, I never liked red meat to begin with. So mm. like, I have no desire to eat these things. And even the plant-based chicken, for whatever reason, I don't know the reason, plant-based chicken, grosses me out. I never like it. 
Like, for, like I love field roast sausage. I love tofurkey sausage. The sausage ones I really like. The chicken, I made something, I made a recipe with Beyond Chicken ones, and I could not eat it. Like, I sent my husband with it to his office and, like, find somebody who can eat this because I can't. Like, I took two mm. bites. I'm just like, no. So I probably wouldn't bother to try it. But I, I hope that I hope that people are open to it. I think that that's another topic we were going to get into is, like, is, are is people it that you weirded hope, out by it? Is it that you hope meat eaters yes. are open to it? Yes, I hope meat eaters would be open to it. Yeah. What I fear is that steakhouses – won't be open to it. So where are you going to go to eat this? One of the things that I m- miss about not eating so much meat, it, like for a while in the beginning, after you turned my wife to the green side, <laughs> um, uh, she would still eat a steak once or twice a year, whether it was our anniversary or some other day, somebody's birthday, um, there was a couple years in a row where it was like Christmas Eve and she would eat a steak. And it's been years since we've actually done that. And I kind of just want the experience of like going out to a nice dinner. And unfortunately in Puerto Rico, I can't think of some place where it's like going to be fine dining and vegetarian. So I'm like, let's go to a steakhouse. You can eat every vegetable on the, <laughs> the menu. Um, but I just want to go have a steak and a glass of wine, and I want that ambiance too. Yeah. If a steakhouse would offer this, I mean, I'm not paying $150 for a steak, but if they would offer a, a vegetarian alternative, I would absolutely go try that. Um, I think it might. I, I think you. I think we might be surprised about who offers it. Um, I sent you one of the many articles I sent you was about um, uh, Eat Just has produced a cell cultured chicken. Yeah. And it is now available in Singapore, but the places in Singapore who are serving it are like it's like this super high end restaurant. I think because it's still so expensive. Hmm. So we might get yeah the fine dining. It might be fine dining places who offer it first. Okay, I guess in my mind when I think of a steakhouse, I think that they're like protecting their turf. Oh yeah, no, I, I think that's that's probably true. But I think but so, you'd get maybe, like I think maybe it'd be some fancy, fancy restaurants. Yeah, fancy restaurants. Yeah, steakhouses might like, be the last places. Yeah, <laughs> New York City restaurants. I can think of some places downtown that would carry this sort of thing, um, but not like a steakhouse. You're not going to see this at Morton's or Roots Chris or wherever. Yes, Peter Luger. Um, <laughs> Peter, right. They, they have a room where they hang all the vegetarian steaks and you can <laughs> right. see them through the glass. Yeah, it's probably not going to um, be those places. But I think you're definitely going to um, get a fine dining experience with it, and I think that's going to be cool. And I've, I've improved over the You know, your influence and my wife's influence has, has improved me, too. I think when you talk about eating steak here in Puerto Rico, there is a Roots Chris and there is a Morton's. I'd really like to go to the Morton's, if I'm being honest. Um, but when you ask people, like, where can I go get a steak, they always name, like, Brazilian steakhouses, okay. which are those places where you, like, get this little button that's green on one side and red on the other. Green is, like, feed me more meat, and red is, like, I'm good. And okay. they just come around. They just come around with meat, and then they cut you a piece off of this this huge thing of meat. <laughs> and it's very it, – I've only done this once in my life, and it was, I don't know, 10 years ago or more. And it's just very indulgent, and it's just so much meat. Um, so I don't know. 
that's but that's that's what people here associate like oh you want a steak you should go do this um so i don't know so that's funny yeah but that's sort of like steak overload <laughs> it is um so I think I want to come back to the types of burgers in a bit. But when we talk about people protecting their turf, yeah. we've seen other examples of this, haven't we? I don't know if it was Arkansas or Alabama Arkansas, who passed yeah. the law. Mm-hmm. It was Arkansas. And they're really protective about the words that vegetarian food companies are using. Yeah. And I think this goes back to what we were talking about, about how there's like two different categories. When okay. the veggie burgers were just for the vegetarians and vegans the meat industry wasn't really paying much attention to them. But now that you've got like Beyond Burger, like putting its stuff in the meat section of the store and like really sort of targeting those consumers, like trying to make it really taste like meat and bring meat eaters to eat the plant-based meat. Now like that the meat industry feels a little threatened, this is the kind of stuff that's that's going on. And yeah, in Arkansas, they tried to pass this law to stop, uh, this was specifically against the Tofurky company, to stop them from using like the word burger, the word sausage, even though it says vegan or veggie or whatever, plant-based, um, which the ACLU uh, challenged and um, the, the law was blocked. But yeah, it's, it's a very interesting thing. So like the FDA side of this, like the FDA has these rules called standard of identity rules so that means there are certain foods or ingredients, I guess ingredients, that can be on an ingredient label and have a very specific meaning. Like butter has a, as a good mm-hmm. example, has a very specific meaning. So if that's an ingredient list, you don't need to then put in parentheses milk, salt, you know, cream, whatever. Like butter is its own, has its own identity, right? Sure. Mayonnaise was another hotly contested one, right? Yes, yes, I think so. So to to take the butter example, um, when we buy peanut butter or almond butter, that is we are we're allowed to put that on labels because it has a qualifier. So although I don't think it's like explicitly stated in the FDA's rules, the purpose of the standard of identity rules is that customers are not fooled. They're not. Um, they're not sold something, being told it's butter, but it's actually something else. Basically, that that is the purpose. Yeah, they're not under the impression. Yeah, they're not under, okay. right. So when something says peanut butter, we don't think it has any dairy in it. We know that it's like something you can spread, like butter, something you can spread, but it's made out of peanuts. So for a long time, companies have been using like soy milk, almond milk, coconut milk, um, or even goat's milk, because the standard of identity from for milk from the FDA is um, cow's milk. Really? Yes. So even so goat's even milk, goat's milk like it, defies the definition, right? Huh. Um, but but the FDA has always allowed it because if you're going to challenge, if you're going to challenge the labeling of something, you have to be able to show that a consumer could be tricked by it. That the consumer thinks. She's getting cow's milk, but she's actually getting goat's milk. That's sort of like how how those things work. And that's why a lot of these lawsuits um, have gotten thrown out. Like the other one I sent you uh, was actually in California. And it's against um, this company, Miyoko's Creamery, who, like, side note, uh, Miyoko Shinner 
basically like brought vegan cheese to like the awesomeness that it is right now and it was always terrible before <laughs> um i mean it, it, in a large part it had to do with, with her and she um she's she released a cookbook and like her cheeses they're made out of like cashews and almonds and stuff and sort of produced in the same way the same kind of fermentation that you'd use for cow's milk cheese and it's very good so of course she's being sued and <laughs> and some of the interesting things about that um was um yeah so they're saying like she can't use the word butter even though she says you know vegan butter made from plants like it's very obvious that it's a vegan product no one is buying this thinking that it is cow's milk butter but that's not really the purpose of the lawsuit like that would be the argument they'd have to make to like make it legally sound i think yeah but they sort of feel like it's cutting into the dairy industry's territory and one really interesting thing about that lawsuit was they were trying to say that she had to remove there's a photo on the back of the butter package there's a photo of a woman hugging a cow and it's like they told her they had, <laughs> they were trying to get that removed from the packaging it's very interesting because there's a cow because because there's a cow because it's basically implying that conventional butter involves cruelty huh which it sort of inherently does i mean dairy means in order to get dairy you have to take baby cows away from their mothers and you know that's sort of inherently cruel cruel you can't really you can't really make that <laughs> it is you know so we have these words like burger bacon mm -hmm. butter and so various people have tried to use legal means to block vegetarian companies to use it one one that i'll absolutely call bullshit on is anybody who complains well like well coconuts don't have nipples you can't milk a coconut it's like people have called coconut milk exactly coconut yeah. milk for hundreds of years this isn't just about this current battle yeah it's, it's been like because it's milk yeah these words are really used to describe like functionally what this item does like a vegan yeah. butter is something that you spread on your toast. Coconut milk, yeah, is white and creamy, so it's called coconut milk. And actually, to, to go back to like the um, uh, sort of Chinese cuisine thing from medieval China, soy milk has been around, I think, since like ancient China because tofu was made from soy milk. So soy milk is a very old food and it's been called soy milk, you know, for all this time. Hmm. And, you know, it's called that because of, because it is a white creamy liquid. I miss New York Chinese food so much. It's not, it's not the same here in Puerto Rico. And like, if you say like, can I get this dish, but with no meat, most of what you end up getting is cabbage, which isn't bad, but like the kids don't eat it. So then there's like a couple pieces of broccoli, two pieces of baby corn, some mushrooms, and and it's really really expensive. So they don't so they don't um, have like like broccoli with garlic sauce, like that kind of stuff. It ends up being pretty expensive if you do just oh, really? that. Like mm -hmm. if you they're like they're like, "Oh, you're going to clean us out of broccoli if we do that." <laughs> okay. Before we jump back in, do you want to hear more, Dina? Do you want to hear a podcast about the X-Files? 
Well, if either or both of those things are true, you should check out the X-Cast. It's a podcast completely dedicated to the X-Files, and Dina sometimes is a guest. Don't worry. Her and I talked about the X-Files a little bit, and we recorded it, but I'm going to save that for a future episode. And back to me and Dina. Maybe we won't resolve this in this conversation, but I, I have a, a challenge for you. Okay. There's, there's a, there's, I, I want to develop a new phrase, or I want you to tell me if there's something that exists. Um, but there's a, and this doesn't even need to be exclusively about vegetarianism. But if you go to a restaurant and there's a, a dish that you want, and it has one ingredient that you don't want to be in there, yeah, taking that out doesn't make it cheaper. No. The thing that I struggle with, the thing that I struggle with the most is in Puerto Rican uh, cuisine, everyone loves cream cheese. People love cream cheese so much. I hate cream cheese. I've hated <laughs> cream cheese my whole life. And I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a big sushi guy. I really enjoy sushi. And there's usually a sushi roll or two or maybe three on a sushi place's menu that has cream cheese in it. In Puerto Rico, it's almost every roll has cream cheese in really? it. Really? Okay. And so... If I take that out, that doesn't make it any cheaper, despite the fact that it is a pretty expensive ingredient compared to the other, especially if it's like a veggie roll, like if it defaults with cream cheese in the veggie roll, and I'm like, okay, the veggie roll just without that, and it's like, okay, and what's like, it's still like $12, it's like, that's some carrots and some cucumber and maybe Mm -hmm. some interesting root if it's a good sushi place, um... That's kind of messed up to be charging me $12 for it. Yes. And a very related thing is um, sort of being charged extra for, you know, soy milk or almond milk when you go to a coffee place. But like a dollar extra, you know, or 75 cents extra, which is kind of a lot. Yeah. Um, There is like that container is $2. (laughs) I have heard, I have heard this referred to as the vegan tax. And I heard a great, I don't know where this article was, but uh, there was this great analogy where this person said, listen, when you go to a pizza place and you're getting toppings, there's usually like, there's like the 50 cent toppings and like the dollar toppings. And so let's say the 50%, you know, it's like, you know, peppers, mushrooms, you know, onions, whatever. And they go, okay, onions are really, really cheap. Peppers can be quite expensive, but... They sort of like, they put them both on the same list because they're not going to charge different amounts for every single topping because it's just confusing. So they just sort of like even it right. out by making them both 50 cents. And it's like coffee places could easily do that where they just sort of make, no matter what milk you're choosing, it costs the same and it just sort of evens out. And like a lot of these milks are just like, they're just not that much more expensive than cow's milk. And so similar, to, and so it's it's related I have experienced that a lot where I get something without the cheese or without the meat and I'm like, you're still charging me like $25 for this. There's actually, we had an experience just like this or a, a couple nights ago, like there's this pizza place in town and we order like the marinara pizza because that doesn't have any cheese on it. And then like we sprinkle a little vegan cheese on it when we get it home and like heat it up in the oven. But they also okay. have this other, they have this arugula pizza which is delicious, and we just get, like, we've ordered, like, okay, give us the arugula pizza without the cheese, but the arugula pizza is, like, $7 more than the marinara pizza, and it's because it's got this fancy, like, buffalo mozzarella on it. 
And I'm like, but we're not getting right. that. <laughs> but they don't ever knock the price up. But then I actually, there's another restaurant we go to a lot that actually does knock down the price when you get the vegetarian versions of stuff, which I've always thought is really cool. But it's very rare. Right. And once I found myself at a Carl's Jr. Mm -hmm. And this was during one of my... Uh, I don't want to get too into it because I did talk about it in either the last episode or the one before that with Sarah. But when I'm eating healthy, I tend to lean pretty hard towards vegetarian. Um, it And I eat less. Um, and so there was a Carl's Jr. I was in an airport and I said, I rarely see Carl's Jr. I want to indulge, but I want to do it in a responsible way. So I'd love if you guys could make me the Portobello Burger but I want to put the guacamole from this other burger and I want to put the onions from this cowboy burger and I want to put these other toppings. <laughs> and so they were like, all right, there's going to be a $22 burger. And I was like, bullshit. And they were like, no, because it's this much for this. And then this much. for this. I was like, you can't charge me. And I was like, I'm not getting the meat. I'm not getting the most <laughs> expensive thing in there. I'm getting all of the toppings on a burger. And they were like, nope, can't do it. And yeah. I was like, okay, then I'm going to go eat somewhere else. And I was really kind of depressed because I wanted – I think I've had Carl's Jr. once or twice in my life. And I just wanted the the prince. I'm a sucker for marketing. I'm such a sucker for marketing. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've had experiences like that too. It is, it's disappointing. So I just feel like there needs to be some term. Um, once when I worked – so there's a related thing called value-based pricing. Once I worked at a company and we made a product and – when I found out how much that product cost to make, which was like, for example, let's just say it was $2 it cost to make. And we were selling it for like $40. And I was like, why are we selling this for so much money? Well, there was only one other product that existed on the market that was even comparable. Mm -hmm. And they were, the, they were the existing competitor. They dominated the market and we were replacing them. And I was like, why wouldn't you undercut them? Our product is better. It like lasts longer. Why wouldn't you charge far less? And totally, you know, beat their pants off. And like value-based pricing. And I was like, what are you talking about value-based pricing? I'm like, you go out to a restaurant, you can get a salad, you can get a pasta dish, and it costs just as much as all of the other entrees. Those two things, salads and pasta, are remarkably cheaper. But mm -hmm. if they charge less for that, everyone would go to their restaurant and get pasta and salad, and they would go out of business. So they, it, it needs to be, what's the price for the value of eating at a restaurant? And I was like... Well, that's bullshit. And they're like, you're totally right. And that's the way the world works. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Oh, interesting. Okay. I've never heard that phrase before. But that, yeah, I get it. So I feel like there's got to be some adjacent phrase, which is like the fact that uh, if you get the, a Big Mac with no meat, it's still going to cost you what a Big Mac costs. It doesn't mm -hmm. matter that you took away the fundamentally expensive thing. Um, I don't think it's value-based pricing. I don't know. Yeah. Um, I, I do like it being called the vegan tax. I think that that yeah. is definitely relevant. Yeah. <laughs> and, and to be fair, it's not even just the vegan tax. It's also like, you know, anybody who's got like lactose intolerance or, you know, yep. some reason that they actually can't have the dairy or the eggs or whatever it is. Yeah. And especially here in this corner of Puerto Rico where I am, where it's not a food desert. There's plenty of vegetables if you go to the right supermarket, but what they have on a given week might be rotating based on what's available. Mm -hmm. um, after Hurricane Maria, it was hard to get um, veg vegetables because most yeah. of it's imported. 
or was wiped out if it grows locally. Yeah. Um, but we get stuff late, and so I don't know. You need to go into San Juan. You need to go into the city <laughs> if you want a Chinese place that will make tofu. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Whereas I'm like, you're a Chinese place. Like, tofu's, like, fundamental to your cuisine. Um, yes. But it's it's rare in this area. I don't know of any close-by Chinese place that would make me tofu. That's and I would totally eat. I wonder why. I would, to <laughs> I would totally eat Chinese food tofu. Um, I have gotten General Tso's tofu. <laughs> that is, like, so amazing. Yeah I, I, yeah. yeah, I really like that. But actually, yeah, broccoli with garlic sauce or broccoli and tofu with garlic sauce are, like, my favorite things. I yeah, rarely get Chinese food because my husband doesn't doesn't enjoy it, which is too no. bad because I really like it. There's two dishes that I always confuse. One's Szechuan, and the other one is I don't I don't remember what the other one is. But one's spicy, and the other one has like beans, and they're both good. And I like them both. Um, salt and pepper might be my favorite. Mm. Um, if, if, if there's a place that makes like salt and pepper tofu or salt and pepper chicken or salt and pepper shrimp, that one, when it's good, it's fantastic. Oh, I don't, yeah, I don't think I've ever had that. I, I really like the um, Kung Pao tofu or veggies, if I can find that, because that's got peanuts in it, and I love peanuts. Okay. I'm really specific about my peanuts. For me, oh, yeah. it's peanut, peanut butter with either like <laughs> crackers or pretzels. Definitely okay. not with chocolate. Oh, And probably not in a dish. I, w I would maybe eat it in a dish, but definitely not with chocolate. No way. Can't do it. Interesting. Okay, so we've done some meandering. Something that Sounds we've both said now and, and we haven't addressed is that we shouldn't really talk about a food as being healthy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like grammar-wise? Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. Like, so a person a could person be healthy. A person is healthy. A food is healthful. And this is like yeah. this is like something I really try to do, but it's really hard to stick with, because it just comes so naturally to say healthy and not healthful. Well, I think that's half of it, and the other half is, let's be honest, you're kind of trying to convert people. <laughs> so if so, people generally don't like to be told that they're wrong. No. So like, well, <laughs> well, actually, you're say, you're saying that that food is healthy, but in fact, you should be saying it's healthful. And yes, gonna as be a like, rule, I, I like never do that. <laughs> I do not want to do that to people. But like when I'm writing, because I write about food, um, I always say healthful because, I don't know, someone told me once and I looked it up and I was like, oh, wow, I've been saying this wrong forever. Right. And this is one of the challenges of science in general and technical writing is that you're trying to demonstrate to your peers and to experts in the field that you have command of the subject matter right. and understand what you're talking about. And at the same time, trying to appeal to the masses mm -hmm. who that's a really fine line to walk. Yeah, it's it's really difficult to satisfy both parties. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because it's really challenging it, it, it's really challenging to use words, like to not use jargon, but and to do that, so to make it understandable by someone who's not a scientist, but at the same time, not dilute the meaning of what you're saying to the right. point that it's not really correct anymore. Um, yeah, right. that is something that is always challenging to me. Um, and I try to... The way I look at it is like I want to give my readers credit 
for being interested in the subject and being able to maybe learn one new word in this article. Right. So, but if you inundate them. Yeah. So like me, if I, if I can use like maybe one or two new words and like put in parentheses what this word means, then maybe they'll learn something new, but they won't be turned off because it's just full of jargon. But it's, yeah, yeah that is a really fine line to walk. And I think that's part of why the state of science communication is like not great is because it's a lot easier to write for other scientists than it is to write for the public. Yeah. And if you try and cater it to the public, then some of the academics and experts will say, oh, well, you're catering to the lower, lowest common denominator, and now you're not doing science. Yeah. Now you're not really conveying the, the message. And I kind of reject that, mm-hmm. even though I admit that there's some truth to it. I think this is really just, you know, the challenge before us. Yeah. Yeah, I think you just can't get around. It is, it's difficult. It's challenging. There's no easy answer to it. Um, while we're on definitions, so healthy versus healthful, uh, noted, I don't know if I'm ever <laughs> going to actually get that straight. It's um, really hard. I'll, well, what's going to happen is I'm going to say healthy out loud. Mm-hmm. Like, Oh, this 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 meal is really healthy. And then I'm going to think to myself, you should have said healthful. Do I bother going back and correcting myself? No, probably not. Well, this has been a nice talk with you. Yeah, you too. You have a nice day. Um, natural. What's what's oh, the definition goodness. of natural? So this how, is how do we get to say if 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 the label says natural? Okay, so this is a super interesting topic, and it's like a huge topic. So. The first thing to know is that when you see natural on a food label, there is no official definition in the United States of natural. The FDA actually started, I think finally in 2018, decided that they were going to define natural. And they started like a comment period. This is something the FDA does when they're going to make a new rule. And they invite industry and the public to comment on what they think the rules should be how they think it should be defined. So in this case, how should natural be defined? Um, I think the comment period is over. I don't think they have made the rule. I have not seen anything about them actually making the rule. But um, it gets to a very interesting thing because there were a bunch of, I think one of the reasons they wanted to define it was there was there were a bunch of lawsuits, um, people suing companies who put natural on their label, who had things in the ingredient list that they you know, the plaintiff or whoever did not think qualified as natural. So it was maybe high fructose corn syrup or carrageenan or uh, some uh, genetically engineered product. And, um, Mm. but if you actually, the truth is natural is subjective. Like there's not really a black and white definition. If you look at what we eat today, none of it is really natural like every every crop that we eat has been cultivated and crossbred and whatever over hundreds thousands of years so it's not you know it's not the original as it just showed up in nature and you know there's always Mm. natural (laughs) natural like naturally occurring you know mutations there's things that just there's evolution there's things that change it changes over time so it's like there's this question of like when is the line crossed, and um, and that's sort of um, 
that's where that's where we are. And it, I mean, so you provided me a link, and it seems like the FDA themselves doesn't really care to comment too much about what makes natural. At least not yet. It seems like they. It seems like they only really apply it if it's like a, a coloring. Yeah. Or a flavoring, mm-hmm. like a natural versus artificial flavoring. So it right. seems like they've drawn the line there. Yeah, because um, that that I think is is something that you can actually, you can that actually can be made black and white because natural like and I think those have definitions in the ingredient list like natural flavors and artificial flavors are things that have like specific definitions so if there's like an artificial flavor then maybe you shouldn't say natural yep but yeah and then all a lot of these things have e numbers um which I guess is something from like the European Union okay like a lot of different I don't and so when so an, I guess another word that I'm, I'm jumping ahead to was clean or oh, simple. Yeah. Clean, simple. Yeah, it's um, that is a very interesting thing to me. And it's something that like bothers me because there's this whole um, there's this um, very common perception that it's like I want to be able to know and pronounce all of the ingredients in this food. If there's if there's something in this food that I can't pronounce, I don't want to buy it. And you know, if I've never heard of it and it's a really long name and I can't And that's just not like it's not really logical. Um it it's very and it's very counterproductive because just because you can't pronounce something doesn't mean it's harmful. And there are things that you can easily pronounce that, like, are harmful. <laughs> like, I don't know, arsenic. That's pretty easy to pronounce, but it's pretty bad. <laughs> but whereas there was somebody who, like, Panera at one point banned ascorbic acid. Mm-hmm. Oh, really? Which is vitamin, vitamin C. Which is vitamin C. So it's just like, yeah. I, why would you do that? Yeah. So, like, my yeah my feeling on this is, like, instead of telling people that like things should be clean and simple and all of your you know beauty products should just be like coconut oil and aloe vera juice like educate people on what these things are because they're actually not scary they're not dangerous i'm trying to think of a good example of like a really of like a really long name that's like i don't know something like methyl cellulose or whatever it's like it's fiber <laughs> like it's plant fiber and one that's like it's not really near and dear to my heart, but it was an interesting conversation when it was a hot topic was you shouldn't drink fireball whiskey because it has antifreeze in it. And I was like, I don't even know what you guys are talking about, but surely that's not true. And so fireball whiskey is a it's a weak whiskey mm-hmm. with a cinnamon flavor. Yeah. And it was pretty popular in, I don't know, I'm going to say like 2013, 14, 15. Okay. Yeah, Pitbull I've heard had it. a song. <laughs> um, <laughs> and it, like, I love whiskey. Um, I don't particularly like cinnamon flavored things mm-hmm. that aren't baked goods. Um, <laughs> and I didn't really feel a need for whiskey to be weaker more viscous and cinnamon. Um, <laughs> but the American public clearly disagreed because it became really popular. Uh-huh. And I guess people who don't really like whiskey, it's more a little bit more approachable. Yeah. Um, 
it's not so strong and it has this nice cinnamon flavor. I guess that's nice to some people. And it did contain um, an ingredient called propylene glycol. Oh, okay. And so propylene glycol is in a lot of food. Oh, yeah. And regardless of whether it's good or whether it's bad, I'm going to... Um, I'm going to fire some shots here, but Fox News and their like of sensational journalists mm -hmm. are just like, Fireball Whiskey has antifreeze in it. And I had a lot of relatives who were saying, oh, it has antifreeze in it. And it's like, look, I, I'm not looking to stick up for this brand of whiskey, nor propylene, propylene glycol, but a simple internet search will show you that this is in a lot of food that you eat already. And somebody started, because it was it, it's a great headline. That this that this alcoholic drink that's becoming very popular, and um, think about the kids is an easy one to throw in there, and it has yeah. antifreeze in it. Yeah. Well, okay. So, propylene glycol, at the time, was only used in some antifreezes. Ethylene glycol was more uh, common because it has a lower freezing point. They've started to, in antifreeze, it seems that they've actually started to move towards propylene glycol to reduce the likelihood of people dying from poisoning if they drink actual antifreeze. Interesting. That's an interesting twist to the and, story. <laughs> and Fireball fireball Whiskey, um, which is made, I think, by Sazerzac, which is actually uh, a, a whiskey brand, they took propylene glycol out just because of all the bad press they were getting. And maybe that's a positive move. Maybe propylene glycol isn't the best thing to have in your foods. FDA does generally regard it as safe. But it was just so sensationalized. Yeah, it's so it just like It's hard to be a person who enters that kind of conversation. You're like, look, I'm not sticking up for this ingredient being in food. But your hatred towards it is somewhat ignorant. Yeah. Because it's actually in a lot of things that you're not complaining about. Yeah, and I think one of the things that's really frustrating about that is, like, sort of the priority that people place on that sort of thing. Like, there's a lot of people who really obsess over these, like, additives and those sorts of things. Or, like, whether something is organic or conventional or non-GMO, but are thinking way less about, like, I don't know, how much sugar's in it, which is, like, way more relevant to your health. Right. That's that's the frustrating part is it, is it sort of it takes the focus off the things that are way more relevant, way more important. And um, yeah, like you said, it's it's like sensationalism. I want to throw out like a tip to the listeners. Something a way to look if you are concerned about some ingredient in food. One thing to do would be to check out like do Google, a Google search or a PubMed search. Um, for EFSA, that's the European Food Safety Authority, and like the ingredient and then like safety assessment, you can often find um, the European Food Safety Authority's safety assessment of this ingredient or the FDA's. I've had more luck with the EFSA ones. And you can read what they found. There's like toxicity studies and whatever. And those will give you a pretty good idea. And a lot of times it's like this stuff is perfectly fine. Like you can find there's human studies, there's animal studies, you know, there's like toxicity studies with animals, which are like not very pleasant to read about where they give the animals like ridiculous quantities of the stuff to see what happens. But it's sort of 
you know, necessary evil at this point in time. Hmm. So that that's one way to like check the stuff out. But yeah, it's I'm trying to think of like another example of these ingredients. But sometimes it's just it's just a lack of understanding of food processing and manufacturing by the general public. Like food, like it just doesn't magically turn out like this. Like sometimes you need to add a thickener so that it doesn't separate like, a you know, to a salad dressing or something. Or sometimes like in a supplement, this is something like I deal with at work. Like there are some things you need to add to the powder to make sure that it gets distributed evenly in the capsules and like doesn't stick to the equipment. And, you know, it's like, so if you are just demanding that these additives be removed, you're going to get actually a lower quality product. Hmm. That's not so good. Yeah. Is, do you have any strong feelings about sucralose? Um, I am generally, I generally try to stay away from non-caloric sweeteners. Um, Okay, so there's a little bit of research, and this is specifically like artificially sweetened beverages or non-caloric sweeteners in okay. beverages, that if in between meals, right, if you're drinking like a diet soda or something that's got an artificial sweetener in it, that it can over time uh, sort of dysregulate your hunger and satiety signals. So like... Hmm you're drinking something sweet. So your body's going, oh, I taste sweet. Calories are coming, but then no calories come. And like your brain gets confused. And so the theory, you know, this is not like totally figured out. There's a theory that it, um, that you end up eating more at other parts of the day because like your, your signals have been like sort of screwed up and it doesn't actually like, that it's not actually helpful. Whether any of these sweeteners are like actually somehow like dangerous, I think is still not known. Like as far as like, yeah, you know, me, car cancer or whatever. Yeah, me personally, I pretty much avoid diet anything. Mm -hmm. um, if I try not to drink soda, but if I do, I'm going to drink normal soda. Um, which, I mean, unfortunately in the U.S. means that it has uh, high fructose corn syrup in it, mm -hmm. which I'd really prefer to avoid. Um, but so in some of the links that you shared me, it was interesting to me that Whole Foods, it specifically said that Whole Foods banned sucralose. Um, sucralose for anybody listening who isn't aware is uh, Splenda. Mm -hmm. And so I remember being at university. Sorry, I work with so many European people <laughs> nowadays that I said that I said that being at university, being at uni, mate, um, being at college in New Jersey in approximately 2000 and knowing some people who were doing internships at Johnson and Johnson who was developing Splenda at the time and getting free samples of it and like we baked a cake with it I remember we baked an angel food mm -hmm. cake and it was like it's really sweet you should cut the amount of sugar in half yeah we should have cut it even further it's way too sweet you need yeah, to cut it super, in like a quarter sweet. a lot of the sweet i think the numbers are something like some of them are like 300 times sweeter than sugar or something it's like really large numbers yeah but if i had to drink something that was diet i would go for sucralose before like as aspartame? The pronunciation as aspartame mm -hmm. um because 
I just don't like the taste of that. Mm -hmm. Like conventional diet soda yeah. and conventional diet things. I think taste chemically, mm -hmm. whereas stuff with Splenda in it certainly tastes weird, mm -hmm. but it's not as off-putting to me. Um, so I don't know. Does Whole Foods ca carry conventional diet stuff, or do they also? I I, I don't wonder know. if they cover if they um, if they carry like stevia sweetened stuff because that's sort of I'm sure they do because this is like something because this goes back to the natural and I'm doing air quotes nobody can see me this goes back to the natural thing like well it comes from stevia leaf but yeah the actual like stevia it's like this super super concentrated like this one particular um one particular molecule or two from like the stevia plant like it's not actual like ground up stevia leaves in your iced tea or whatever um. yeah it's just like I don't think these things are all that different but most people would probably identify stevia as natural and sucralose as not. Hmm. Um, but yeah, but Whole Foods certainly carries lots of stuff with like sugar and like, you know, stuffed with oils and like, you know, crap, you know, white flour. And um, like, granted, I'm not like, I don't think you should replace all of your like sweet everything with with like artificial sweeteners, of course, but like sugar is pretty bad. Yeah, I'm I mean, I'm fortunate. I don't have the best diet, but I don't really have a sweet tooth. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's good. Um, I really do. <laughs> yeah, like dessert is a luxury. Um when I got married, this was a bizarre thing to me to have a wife who thinks that dessert is something that you eat every day. Yeah. And it's like one cookie. Right. That it, I'm like, okay. This is something are... about your wife that I am very envious of because I've known her for a long time, like over 20 years now. And um, I would be with her and like she would get a piece of chocolate cake and she would eat three pieces, like three bites of chocolate cake. And be like, oh, that was so good. I'm full. And I'm like, what? Like, <laughs> how? Like you do like to me, if 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 we open a pack of Oreos, I'm killing a, one <laughs> a of those lanes of Oreos. <laughs> yeah. Whereas like I will, um, there, I will get there to is the no end. One cookie. Yeah. I'll get to the end of the piece of chocolate cake and be like, it's, it's like this amazing power of will to not eat another piece. Right. But I would do that twice a month. <laughs> right. Whereas she'll eat, I, like, yeah. I, I would never be like, I need dessert. Like, it would be right. It's like summertime. And you're like, hmm, I could go for some ice cream. Whereas, like, ice cream in my family, now it's like maybe like once every other weekend um, we have ice cream. Uh, and it's you know, non-dairy ice cream, which um, is actually somewhat available. It's amazing oh, cool. that Walgreens, of all places, the local Walgreens would have uh, the non-dairy Ben & Jerry's. And I'm excited that they're making the, I don't forget what it's called, but the the Stephen Colbert flavor. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, I forget what it's called, too. Like, but I know what you're talking about. <laughs> Americone, oh, Americone Dream. Because yeah. there's, there, there's pieces of cone in it. And so there's a non-dairy version of that coming, which I think I'm going to have to go to the Ben & Jerry's store in San Juan to get. But I think they'll have it. Nice. Might be a while before Walgreens starts carrying that one. Yeah, I've been amazed one of the at, like the brands that have put out vegan stuff lately, like things that I never thought would happen in my lifetime. Like just this past week or a couple of weeks ago, Hidden Valley Ranch put out a vegan ranch dressing. Like I'm just amazed by this stuff. And like, I think Breyers even has vegan ice cream now. Breyers does have vegan ice cream. Mm -hmm. I did I never, damage I haven't to seen a, it. 
or tried it, but yeah, hurt. I got cookies and cream and did a did a a big <laughs> damage to a half gallon. Um, have you told my wife about the Hidden Valley Ranch? No, no, I just found out. I should tell oh, her. She's gonna lose her mind. She's oh my god, you're right. Mind. I didn't even think of that. She does love that. All right, I well, I sent you a link, so you have to <laughs> you have to share it with her too. But yeah, I'll text her. The local pizza place does a uh, pizza that instead of cheese has a non-dairy ranch on it. Oh, really? Um, and we usually we usually get that on the side because I'm not a fan. Yeah. I'm just like, look, I'm happy to eat pizza that doesn't have cheese and has loads of vegetables on it and stuff. Oh, yeah, that's another great um, thing about the word natural is like uh, I think a lot of people are down on vegan cheeses because, you know, they seem like, quote, chemically or whatever, some of them. I mean, a lot of them are made from like almonds and cashews and whatever. Um but like some of the shredded cheeses, like well the one the one I when I occasionally use it has like it's like tapioca and coconut oil and like a couple other things. But like I'm also happy to just eat like when I stopped eating cheese, there was none of this, and I just was fine to just not eat cheese anymore. Although it took some like mental gymnastics to do that. But like yeah, a pizza and then the, the and the early dia didn't melt. No, the well the, the early, early the early didn't veggie stretch. yeah the early diet well even before dia the early vegan cheeses first of all they were not even vegan, okay, <laughs> which was weird. The really? veggie cheeses had what did they have in them? Was it rennet? There was some sort of non-vegan ingredient in the veggie cheese. Like I think it was more for lactose intolerant people, or so it was huh. weird. But anyway, yeah, but also, yeah, I really love just, like, a pizza that's got, like, you know, the tomato sauce and, like, tons of vegetables. Like, that is delicious to me. Like, I don't need the cheese, but I'm also not, like, opposed to the cheese for being unnatural. Um, yeah. But, like, on that. Me, personally, um, then I, I, I add the garlic powder and oh, some, yeah. like, crushed, the, the red pepper flakes. Mm -hmm. And that's a fantastic pizza. I'm, I'm oh, perfectly yeah. happy with that. I've actually, I have a nemesis at our pizza place. And, um... He talked shit one time when I was getting the, <laughs> mm -hmm. like, one of the first times that I met him. And he's some other gringo. Mm -hmm. um, and, like, he started talking shit because I was getting a pizza with no cheese. And I was like, yeah, dude, I'm getting two pizzas. One has no cheese. One has cheese. Like, why do you give a shit? Like, why do you care? I'm why does getting? it bother you? Yes. <laughs> Bro, that's not pizza. I'm like, good. I'm really happy for you that you have an opinion. Well, and also, like, um, from your perspective, it's like, yeah, this is Puerto Rico. I'm from New York. Like... <laughs> Like, I know what pizza is, you know? <laughs> yeah, thank you. Um, so so now I have a nemesis, and That's we funny. encounter each other mostly at that pizza place, and we just don't talk. It, um, yeah, it's weird when people, like, are offended by you not eating I don't know. Like, I, I never know what to do in those situations. Um, me, I talk shit right back. <laughs> and I'm just like, you're an example of what's wrong. Um, yeah. You know, like, I'm I'm not vegetarian, but that doesn't mean that everything I need to eat has meat in it. Um, right. It's like I'm not telling you we, what to when, eat. <laughs> when we first did it, when we when so after our first child was born, um, wife was like, "I want to go vegan for a month," mm -hmm. and I said, "Sure, I'm I'm all about some kind of challenge. Mm -hmm. I love challenges." Mm -hmm. So I was like, "Sure, let's do it." Um, I'm a weirdo because I got a, I don't know, I suppose if I'm, if I'm really being honest with myself about my own bad habits, I need to hit rock bottom before I give up something that I love. Mm -hmm. So that was a September and I said, okay, 
Tuesday after Labor Day, the day after Labor Day, I'll go vegetarian. But Labor Day weekend, I'm eating a lot of meat, mm -hmm. and I did. And then, so we gave up meat, and so that's pretty much the point. So that's, let me think here. Math, oh, I, 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 it's easy, it's my daughter's age. Yes. So that'll be eight years ago <laughs> this coming September. Um, and wife has eaten substantially less meat since then. Mm -hmm. And when I first did it, I remember going to work and telling people, I was like, no, I'm not eating meat or cheese this month. And everyone's reaction was, oh, I don't think I can go a day without meat or cheese. Yeah. And I was like, you're not helping me see your <laughs> side of the story. Yeah, right. <laughs> That's a problem. There should be very few things that you can't go a day without. And... Yeah. Yeah, that's kind of interesting because for me it was like, the, I, or I sort of understand the difference between, okay, I'm not going to eat cheese this week versus like, I'm not going to eat cheese ever again. Like, those are two very different things. Right. Um, so you should challenge yourself. Do a meatless Monday or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, I feel like we, because we were talking about vegan cheese and pizza, we just need to very briefly touch on nooch. <laughs> oh, I had a note, but I didn't know where to bring it in. Um, well, as far as pizza, like another great thing on pizza, if you're doing like a cheeseless pizza and like with just some veggies or whatever. Okay, so I make, this is how I do it. I take nooch, for anybody who does not know, this is nutritional yeast, easily available. Equal parts, nutritional yeast and walnuts with a little garlic powder and like teeny tiny bit of salt and grind it in the food processor. So, and then you get this sort of, like, faux, like, powdery Parmesan cheese. It is so delicious. Yeah. And it's like, you, you don't, it's like... really good. On pasta, on pizza, on anything. I There was this one pizza place that existed when we had an apartment in Brooklyn. It existed a few doors down for, like, two months and then, you know, didn't anymore. But they made a vegan pizza that was just... It had tomato sauce, and then they made this concoction of, like caramelized onions and nutritional yeast like pureed and they made like a swirl on the top of the pizza and it was amazing huh yeah <laughs> so i i encourage any of you listening to to venture into it nutritional yeast is an interesting um additive to food you can you, you can shake it on whatever mm -hmm. um it definitely has its its own unique flavor which is a, a kind of savory. Yeah. Um, I mean, would you call it umami? I don't know. Maybe. maybe? <laughs> I'm not. I'm not good at that game. <laughs> yeah, I don't really. I'm not either. Um, if you, when you're first venturing into it, I recommend you try and make like a grilled cheese. So make like you know, toast two pieces of bread and then like put the bread in a pan with some like butter or you know butter alternative um and just make some of this nooch make make the mixture that that dina just described and put it between the bread and perfect it um even if you make it bad it between two slices of bread is going to be pretty great the first time i ever had it you you set a high bar you brought it to our house when we still lived in new york oh, okay. on kale chips oh right. um you yeah, made kale okay. chips with this awesome nooch stuff on it yeah and that's I was like, like nooch and awesome. garlic and red pepper yeah i was like i could eat this like forever i haven't made those this in a is long really time. good i should make those and there's actually yeah, some i was a big um, fan of those some cool recipes for like cheesy sauce 
like like so you know like broccoli and cheese sort of like you know put broccoli and cheese on a baked potato like that sort of cheese sauce and they have um you put like some butternut squash in it this is sort of like new-ish like okay and you get a good flavor that way but like it also makes it like a bigger volume of sauce and doesn't feel so like gross and fatty because it's like 90 percent cashews or something but yeah it's like butternut yeah. squash and cashews and a bunch of nooch and like maybe a little smoked paprika and if you're feeling fancy <laughs> and garlic and a little lemon and uh yeah i've been doing that a bunch lately that's cool i like it um wife has made a lot of sauces out of almonds or cashews mm-hmm. um and you know make like a a parmigiani uh or alfredo kind of sauce yeah it's Okay, I feel like I want to segue. I remember, oh, sorry. No, fi- finish yours first, and then I've got something. <laughs> before be- before we close out that area, yeah. um, I remember how mad my dad was once, before any of us even, you know, considered being vegetarian. My mom made, it was like, it was like a chili, or it was like, or like she made like, um, like tacos, mm-hmm. Or like a bolognese with ground turkey instead of ground beef. <laughs> and my dad was like offended. <laughs> <laughs> like like this this aggression will not stand. Um, and it was just like I don't like I was it's just a different like I was probably a teenager at the time, maybe I was in college, but I just remember it it didn't go over well. Yeah. And so I think that it's interesting how resistant people are to change yes. in general. In general, yes. Um, let alone, let alone about, <laughs> about their, their food. food. Yeah, food is like very personal. And when you meet somebody who's never encountered somebody who was vegetarian or vegan, they're just like, "Well, I don't get it. Is this broccoli vegan? Like, did you cook it in butter? No. Well, then yes. Why would butter change anything? Like, are you really not getting this? <laughs> and so, okay, like I'll walk you through each each one. But quickly related to what you just said. There's this great uh, Emerald Lagasse mushroom uh, mushroom bolognese recipe <laughs> that I've used a couple times. I saw it like on his show on the Food Network, like I don't know, in the '90s, like a really long time ago. You can find it online. <laughs> um, yeah, mushrooms make great bolognese. That's funny. So yeah, I, um, because you mentioned almonds, I just feel like uh, I know we've already been talking for a long time, but I wanted to bring up. Like one of the interesting things I've seen in science lately is sort of these analyses. It's either like life cycle analysis or like like total environmental impact of um, foods. And there's this um, there's this perception about eating local, how eating local is like the biggest thing you can do for environmental impact because you're cutting down on all these food miles. But actually when it's directly compared um, the food miles are like a really small percentage of the total environmental impact. You know, they're looking at things like land uh-huh. use, water use, greenhouse gas emissions, and a bunch of other things. And I was I was surprised to see that. Um, but actually, it seems like really the biggest thing is like, is it plant or is it animal? And a lot of that just has to do with the simple fact that, like, when you're eating an animal, the animal had to be fed first. (laughs) So you have all the impact of everything that was grown to feed the animal and then of the animal. And so you got that. But there are, like, a couple of crops, like, 
what made me think of this was that you said something about almonds and almonds get a lot of hate for like using so much water and they're grown in California, which is basically the desert. And I think it's valuable to think about, well, I don't know, are there nuts that use less water that I could eat instead sometimes? Like, I think that's valuable. I actually switched from almonds in my smoothie to pecans or pecans, if you're fancy. And um, because they, they use a lot less water and they're, gro- and they're grown in places, they're grown in like Georgia, like places that are not the desert. So like, it's, right. it's like less of an issue. And so I think it's worthwhile to do that. But I think the calling out of those individual foods a lot of times take the focus off the fact that like, well, alfalfa, like I saw an analysis of like water use of a bunch of different crops in California. And the one that used more water than almonds was alfalfa and alfalfa is animal feed. So that's really something to think about. If you're thinking about changing your diet to make it to like lessen the environmental footprint, like the biggest thing you can do is do more plant and, and, and less animal. And then, you know, local is great because you're supporting local farmers. Um, but it's environmentally a little bit, it, it's not as big as you might think. Hmm. Interesting. And, um, one of the, one of the articles you provided me talked about feeding algae to cows. Oh yes. Algae to cattle. <laughs> and, and oh, this will reduce the amount of greenhouse gases that the cattle emit. Mm-hmm. Therefore, it's good for the environment. And it's good in concept, but it seems like they only do it like at the end of the cattle's life. Yeah. So um, it actually only um, is relevant to like 11% of the cattle's total methane emissions. I'm like, yeah. yeah. But also it's like things like that. I just think like also like we as a society, we have this preference for like super high tech solutions, even when very low tech solutions already exist. Like, no, actually the solution to reducing methane emissions of cattle is to eat less cattle, to eat, you know, eat fewer cattle, grow fewer cattle. Yeah, not I mean, to eat cattle in a more complicated way. And it, like when I read that article, it was also like the cattle, they don't like the taste of the algae. So it's like you have to like mix it in with other stuff and like how much can you actually mix in before they stop eating it and um yeah i don't know it's like i understand the the urge to like but it's this like desire to keep things exactly as they are and make it less harmful Mm. and there's just there are limitations to that right i mean perhaps adjacent to that is how crazy can we manufacture straws Mm -hmm. so that they won't have such a an adverse impact on the environment yeah meanwhile you could just not use a straw yes not using a straw is easy but also like on the subject of not using straws i mean okay so i i put this term in the um in our notes, uh, painless environmentalism. And that's sort of the idea behind that feeding the algae to the cows is like, I don't have to change anything. I don't have to make myself uncomfortable. Like, and the thing about the straws is like, okay, the majority of the plastic in the ocean, the vast majority, and I can find like where, where this actual, these numbers are, the vast majority of the plastic in the ocean is fishing nets. Okay. 
like not using a straw is is just not going to make that big a dent in the plastic in the ocean. Like it's just it was a very emotional response that people huh. had, but it's like if you really want to save the oceans, you got to eat less fish. It's it's fishing that is destroying like it's overfishing that is destroying the ocean or like, you know, I mean climate change also, but overfishing is like a much bigger issue than straws. And straws are only a teeny tiny percentage of the total plastic in the ocean. And again, the majority mm. of it is fishing nets, which, you know, from fishing. Yeah. I I always felt really good about myself because I never really liked straws to begin with. <laughs> Um, no, but I agree with you yeah. that y- yeah. we need to be rational. Yeah. Um, oh, and I just want to my... cut in real quick to say, like, I, I could sort of see how I could be accused of sort of being a painless vegan because I never liked red meat to begin with, you know, and I didn't, but I really loved cheese <laughs> and I really liked fish Right. So... and, and those were much harder to give up. So like, I sort of like, I get it. The fish is going to be the one that I have a hard time ever mm-hmm permanently giving up yeah. i can give up mm-hmm. I'm, i don't eat chicken so much because as i'm sure you can hear at home in the back of this podcast there's been <laughs> a fair share of roosters crowing mm-hmm. um so yeah we, we we love chickens around here yeah i do have a soft spot for wings sometimes mm-hmm. but i don't think you but i'm happy to eat i'm happy to eat fake wings yeah it's about the spicy for me most oh of. yeah yeah i like the spicy I don't think you ever, I don't think you have to give something up 100%. Like I think that's a really important thing to get across. Like you do not have to be 100% vegan to like make a difference in, you know, the environmental environmental impact of your diet. Like hmm. if you, you know, like like you just said, if you really really like fish and you want to have it like once every month, it's like that's really not that's not a lot. What I have a problem with is, like, you have the American Heart Association telling people to eat more fatty fish. And I'm like, there's going to be no more fish left. There's going to be nothing left in the ocean but jellyfish at at this rate. By the 90s, we had fished out 90% of the predators in the oceans. And so that was, like, 20 years ago. And so, like, where where are we now? But, like, according – if you look at – like dietary recommendations, Americans are actually falling short of what the American Heart Association and places like that would say is a healthy, healthful <laughs> amount of intake of fatty fish. And that's... Good catch. Um, even though there there are um, algae-derived alternatives, um, you know, for, for the DHA, for the omega-3 fatty acids, which is the, you know they're trying to get you to get from the fish, which is really the only beneficial thing that has ever been found in the fish other than you're eating fish instead of red meat. You know, you're sort of not getting that stuff. Um, yeah, displacing. <laughs> yeah, that's sort of an interesting... Yeah, I didn't put this on the list, but um, the idea of taking environmental considerations into account when creating dietary guidelines is a point of controversy lately this was in the 2015 dietary guidelines usda dietary guidelines which i think didn't come out to like 2018 and the currently the the 2020 ones which i think just came out in december um there's a lot of arguments 
between the scientists and some people at the USDA or like um, or the industries that the USDA you know supports about like should it be based 100% on human health or should we take these environmental concerns like does it also have to be sustainable which like you know I don't know for the earth to keep existing it has to be sustainable like sort of in a general way uh, that that's like a that's a pretty our, interesting. Is it topic. our personal wellness or a global wellness? Yeah. Yeah. Let's do a quick lightning round to okay. to knock off some of these things I haven't crossed out yet. So, if a person can eliminate things like high fructose corn syrup mm-hmm. and hydrogenated oils from their diet, just those two things, mm-hmm. is that like? It seems to me, based on literature and based on how the industry has shifted over the past 10 years that those are maybe two of the the best things that you could focus on first getting out of your diet um i i would agree just with the caveat that trans fats are have lost their generally recognized as safe status so there's almost no trans fat in anything anymore in the united states um so you don't have to work that hard to get that out of your diet um however it's okay. it's been mostly replaced with like palm oil which is very very saturated and not great for you and i would say high fructose corn syrup yeah definitely get that out but uh high fructose corn syrup is not like heads and shoulders above as you know it's not like multiples worse than sugar it's just it's it's they're both bad they're bad in different ways so I, I wouldn't say, okay, I've got the high fructose corn sugar, corn syrup out, but like I'm going to drink like the sugar sweetened soda instead. It's like, eh, no, you really want to cut both of those things. Hmm. And actually, so I would, I would, I would make it more general and say sugar sweetened beverages, like cut out sugar okay. sweetened beverages. Like that's like, if you're just getting started with trying to get healthier, that's like the biggest thing you can do is stop drinking sugar sweetened beverages. To drink water. Yeah. Are the... Are the um, are seltzers and bubbly waters that have flavorings in them? Is that that's something that we should be worried about? They're they're huge. Yeah, I don't think we need to be worried about those. Anything I've seen about that, I yeah, I'm not really concerned. Like, how is it a no calorie flavoring? I don't know. It's just that's something I haven't looked into at all. Um, flavorings are an interesting industry because. Like, even natural flavors, like, the companies that make them, you never know what's in them because it's, like, their proprietary formula to make the flavor. So, like, uh-huh. <laughs> who knows what's in it? Unless it's something like vanilla extract. Like, yeah, you don't really know what it is. That's a, that's a level of chemistry I am not familiar with. There was just some cool anecdotes that we came across in some of the articles you provided. One that in 2016, uh, the breakfast cereal tricks changed, and it wasn't so brightly colored anymore because oh, yeah. they started you they started using colors. natural colorings. Mm-hmm. And I think it was the blue and the green just mm-hmm. completely disappeared because there was mm-hmm. no way to replicate that. Um, and then there was outcry like, "What happened to my tricks?" <laughs> yeah. And so now there's two. And so now there's two tricks. Like one is classic tricks which is all the bright colors, and then the other one is, uh, I guess, would be clean tricks or simple tricks or <laughs> right. something. Right, natural tricks. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because, um, like, yeah, when you're using, like, beet juice and turmeric and annatto and, like, 
cabbage, whatever, for your colorings. It's just like not quite so intense. And I'm like, but I don't really know, like, I don't really know how much evidence there is that there's any like harm to those artificial fire. I think like there are a couple of them that I think um, are not used anymore because there were some issues with them. Uh, there's like somewhat of a link to, I think like ADHD, but it's, you know, it's not really like proven. It's just sort of from this idea of like we talked about of the subjective, like it's natural. Like if something comes from beet juice, it's, it's called beet juice and it's not as opposed to being called like red number something. It's like, that just sort of sounds better. Oh. And honestly, like I'm all for using beet juice because it's something that already exists and like, well, we don't have to do many studies to know if beet juice is safe. We know beet juice is safe. It's beet juice. It's beet juice. <laughs> That's all I have in the, in the field of nutrition in my notes, at least without starting another hour long yeah. conversation. <laughs> yeah. I think we've, uh, I think we've covered a lot. This is pretty cool. All right. So anything else you want to tell the people at home? I, I think I'm, I think I'm out. I think I'm good. Yeah. Tapped. Um, well, Dina, thank you for being on. Thanks, Yogi. Um, this was cool. Yeah. Maybe we can talk again sometime. Uh, we didn't touch on acrylamides, but I kind of feel like... Oh, acrylamide. That was... There's the, one. That was some... <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay. Um, or when you toast a piece of bread uh -huh. as much as I do, there are many because it's all over. Yes. So, oh, but it is... Yeah, um, it is but, one... Um, I used to use it incorrectly, which is, which is why I... Um, there's a lot of acrylamide because it's like one thing and there are many of them. So there's a lot of acrylamide, uh, but it's not like more than one type of molecule. That's like the way I used to use it. And it's, that's not really correct. Oh, <laughs> like if I said, like I was putting five gallons of gasolines yeah. in my car. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay. It's like that. <laughs> Got it. Yeah, we could cool. always get into so, that. We could, we could maybe like pare it down to like two or three like specific topics. <laughs> I mean, if we wanted to. Probably. Well, I really appreciate you being here, and uh, thanks. I, I know I've learned plenty. Cool. Um, so thanks for the homework. All right. Thanks, Yogi. Have a great day. You too.